With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Book series repeated at 9 p.m. and 5 a.m. 2 p.m. New York Times repeated at 10 p.m. and 6 a.m. 3 p.m. Disability News repeated at 11 p.m. You are listening to Radio I, your source for printed news and information. This service is intended for listeners who are blind, visually impaired, or have other disabilities that prevent them from reading. All materials are read as written and do not necessarily represent the views and opinions of Radio I. For further information about this service, please call 859-422-6390 or visit our website at www.radioi.org. That's www.radioeye.org. Happy Monday, everybody, and obviously welcome to November and the reading of the Lexington Herald-Leader. Today is Monday, November 14th, and your reader is Rod Brotherton with Bill Sally at the Master Controls. And as you know, Radio I is a reading service intended for people who are blind or have other disabilities that make it difficult to read printed material. Now from our studios, located in the north side branch of the Lexington Public Library, please join me for this live reading of the Herald Leader, which is donated to Radio I by the publishers. I said welcome to November because I got out to the car this morning. It was 28 degrees and a big frost covering my windshield. I guess November's finally here. And today there's one word that predominates our daily forecast. Cold. Today, high 48, low 33, partly sunny and yes, chilly. Tuesday, a cold with a rain shower. High 43, low 31. Wednesday, Mainly cloudy and, here it is, cold. High 41, low 25. Thursday, partly sunny but cold. High 38, low 23. And Friday, rather cloudy and cold. High 39, low 21. Looking at the almanac, yesterday's high and low was 48 and 32 compared with a normal of 57 and 37. Last year it was 55 as a high, 38 as a low. The record high was a balmy 75 degrees back in 1945, and the record low, 14, way back in 1911. Precipitation on Saturday was 24 hundredths of an inch. Month to date we've had a welcome 0.73, but the normal is still 1.27. Year to date we've had 40.78, The normal is 43.54. And last year, 50.93 inches. And the record for yesterday's date was 2.06 inches in 2003. For the sun and the moon, the sun rose this morning at 718. It will set at 527 this afternoon. Moonrise will be tonight at 1026. And the moon set will be at 1251 tomorrow afternoon. And for our weather trivia... What type, air mass, and kind of bear share the same name? Well, we're getting into it. Polar. All right. Let's look at the headlines for Monday this week. Mayor Linda Gorton wins all but one precinct in her re-election. Lexington Mayor Linda Gorton received widespread support from voters across Fayette County in her Tuesday general election win against challenger David Kloiber, an analyst of the precinct data showed. Gorton won every precinct except one in a rural area off Old Frankfort Pike, where she and Kloiber tied. In that precinct, Enterprise, there were only 18 votes. Kloiber, a first-term Lexington Fayette Urban County Councilman, and Gorton each received 
nine. Moreover, Gorton won nearly all precincts by a wide margin, an analyst of an analysis of precinct level data showed. In total, Gorton received 71% of the vote. There are only two precincts where support for Gorton dipped under 60%, but just barely. She received 59% of the vote in the Bryan Station precinct on the city's north side and received 59% in a precinct along Versailles Road. Gorton performed best in areas that included her former council district, and Gorton was on the council for 16 years prior to becoming mayor in 2018. Her council district included neighborhoods south of the University of Kentucky Arboretum. More than 82% of the voters in Shadeland and Shady Lane precincts in the Lansdowne area voted for the registered nurse. Those precincts in South Lexington have high voter turnouts. And Gorton received 71% of the vote in the four-way May primary. Kloiber was second with 14. On Tuesday, Kloiber made some gains and received 29% of the vote. A May primary precinct analysis showed Gorton won all but one precinct, Enterprise, which went to Adrian Wallace, who came in third in the May primary and did not move on to the general election. Gorton also tied Wallace in third place in a third precinct in May. Gorton credited her 20 years at City Hall behind her countywide support during Tuesday's general election. I think people trust me because they know me and they know what I represent. Calm, thoughtful leadership that puts people and their needs first, Gordon said. She said she learned how to mayor the hard way through experience as a council member, vice mayor, and as a mayor. Gordon also constantly beat better funded opponents. Kloiber had a campaign war chest that topped $640,000, according to Kentucky Registry of Election Finance Reports. Much of that money he pumped into attack advertisements, criticizing Gorton's record on crime. Gorton, meanwhile, raised slightly more than $150,000, campaign finance reports show. In 2018, she also handily defeated Ronnie Baston a former Lexington police chief, despite Baston having more cash than Gorton. Baston raised more than $300,000. Gorton raised again about one hundred and fifty. As for campaigning, I have always run grassroots, volunteer-based campaigns with a focus on people, not fundraising, Gorton said. And next, Cortez Masto wins in Nevada gives control of the Senate to the Democrats. Democratic Senator Catherine Cortez Masto won election to a second term representing Nevada on Saturday, defeating Republican Adam Laxalt to clinch the party's control of the chamber for the next two years of Joe Biden's presidency. With Democratic Senator Mark Kelly's victory in Arizona on Friday, Democrats now hold a 50-49 to edge in the Senate. The party will retain control of the chamber no matter how next month's Georgia runoff plays out by the virtue of Vice President Harris's tie-breaking vote. Democrats' hold on the Senate is a blow to the Republican hopes of wresting away control of Congress in a midterm election that typically favors the party out of power. It was still unclear which party would control the House of Representatives as counting continued in razor-tight races in California and a smattering of other states. Cortez Masto, the first Latina in the Senate, was considered the most vulnerable Democratic senator in the midterm elections. But despite an influx of spending on attack ads from national GOP groups, Cortez Masto managed to secure her re-election bid. Nevada's vote count took several days, partly because of the mail voting system created by the state legislature in 2020 that requires counties to accept ballots postmarked by Election Day if they arrive up to four days later. 
Laxalt had an early lead that dwindled after late-counted ballots came in from the state's population centers in Las Vegas and Reno. Cortez Masto, the state's former two-term attorney general, focused her Senate campaign on the increasing threat to abortion access nationwide and worked to court the state's Spanish-speaking residents and hourly wage earners, pointing out her support of a permanent pathway to citizenship for DREAMers and regularly visiting union halls and workers' groups. Her fundraiser far outpaced Laxalt's, and she spent nearly $47 million and had more than $6 million in cash on hand through mid-October, according to Open Secrets. Laxalt spent nearly $13 million and had about $3 million remaining during the same time. Laxalt, a former Nevada attorney general himself, who unsuccessfully ran for governor in 2018, focused on rising inflation and a struggling economy for much of his campaign, attempting to tie voters' financial woes to policies advanced by Democrats in Congress and to President Biden. Former President Trump, who twice lost Nevada in his White House runs, came to the state twice to rally for Laxalt and other Republican candidates. The state is one of the most diverse in the nation and is largely working class population, often lives paycheck to paycheck, and has struggled with both inflation and the aftershocks of the shutdown of Las Vegas' tourist-based economy during the COVID-19 pandemic. About 5 in 10 of Nevada's voters call the economy the most important issue facing the country, according to an AP VoteCast survey of 2,100 of the state's voters. And finally on the front page, Lexington Pizza Week! Enjoy local options for just six bucks. One of Lexington's cheesiest food events is back. That's right, it's Lexington Pizza Week. This year's version of the annual event from Smiley Pete runs from November 14th through the 20th. A dozen local restaurants are participating with at least two options on the menu at all locations. Most restaurants are offering unique off-menu meat and vegetarian specials, all for a price of just $6 for a slice or two, or a whole small pizza pie. Here's the menu lineup and locations. Keep in mind, restaurants may have a limited number of the special slices or pizzas and may run out. You can get a printable passport at LexingtonPizzaWeek.net and submit it online for a chance at prizes like a free pizza for a year from La Rosa's Pizzeria. First off, Big City Pizza at 1060 Shinoe Road and 3212 Sir Barton Way and 114 Williams Road in Nicholasville and 2216 Lantern Ridge Drive in Richmond. First, the Pig Newton. Sweet mop sauce is topped with pulled pork, mozzarella, bacon crumbles, and finished with a sweet appen habanero glaze. And secondly, their mac and cheese, white cheddar mac and cheese topped with both mozzarella and parmesan. Second location, Jack's Sandbar and Grill at 2536 Larkin Road. Their first pizza is the Duke. Specially crusted, smothered in a blend of sweet chili guajon and sriracha. Housemade spicy seasoning and topped with steak and red onions. And the vegetarian option is the Veggie Jack. A specially crust baked with basil pesto, tomato slices, diced onions, black olives, and dusted with garlic. Next location is Lex Live at 301 South Broadway. They're featuring... The Trailblazer, scratch hand-tossed 10-inch personal pizza topped with buffalo mornay, grilled onions, buffalo grilled chicken, mozzarella, and Colby Jack cheese. And their second is the Mezzanine, 
scratch hand-tossed 10-inch pizza topped with pesto, garlic, artichokes, grilled onions, red peppers, mushrooms, tomato, and mozzarella. Our third location, fourth location is La Rosa's Family Pizzeria at 2890 Richmond Road and 115 Southland Drive. The Cheeseburger Deluxe. Tastes just like a deluxe cheeseburger on a pizza crust. With special burger sauce, ground beef, bacon, roasted onions, pickles, provolone, and cheddar cheeses. The 859 Pizza. Sweet Italian sausage and artisanal pepperoni with Sicilian sauce on crust of your choice. The Skyline Chili Pizza. Two iconic brands, La Rosa's and Skyline Chili, combine in a one-of-a-kind pizza. Skyline Chili's originally secret recipe chili, topped with a mound of shredded cheddar cheese baked on La Rosa's traditional crust. Make it all the way and ask for mustard and onions. Next, Mi Pequina Hacienda. 3501 Lansdowne Drive and 110 Cynthia Drive in Nicholasville. The Mexican chorizo pizza, topped with chorizo, bacon, jalapenos, onions, and topped with Monterey cheese. The veggie Mexican pizza, topped with mushrooms, onions, and black beans. Then we go to Mod Pizza at 2217 War Admiral Way, and that is in Hamburg, off Winchester Road. The Mad Dog, red sauce base topped with mozzarella, pepperoni, mild sausage, and ground beef. The Dylan James, red sauce base topped with mozzarella, asiago, fresh chopped basil, garlic, and sliced tomatoes. And at their 4101 Tate's Creek Center location, the Calexico, topped with mozzarella, gorgonzola, Chicken, jalapenos, hot buffalo sauce, and red sauce. And they also are offering the Tristan, topped with mozzarella, asiago, roasted red peppers, mushrooms, and pesto. Now we move on to Pie 5 Pizza Company, 3401 Nicholasville Road at Fayette Mall. The Tandoori Feather, tandoori chicken with spicy marinara, mozzarella, feta, red onions, and green peppers, topped with cilantro and a yogurt drizzle. And then there's the not-your-father's-veggie, Tuscan marinara, topped with mozzarella cheese, feta, green peppers, red onions, mushrooms, roasted red peppers, fresh jalapenos, grape tomatoes, and pineapple. Next is Rise Up at 101 West Loudon Avenue, and they're offering Roberta's Beasting 61 Revisited, a sourdough crust, fresh tomato sauce, mozzarella, provolone blend, hot soppressata, whipped burrata, and finished with a honey habanero glaze. And then there's the Plymouth Skyline, sourdough crust, fresh tomato sauce, mozzarella provolone blend, blue cheese, Sage, butternut squash, and finished with a cranberry sauce. The next location is Rolling Oven at 723 and 725 National Avenue. The Paella Pie, hand-tossed dough topped with chorizo and shrimp, tossed in a Valencian-inspired garlic sofrito sauce, garnished with lemon zest and parsley, and you get two slices of that. Their other offering is a pumpkin pizza, hand-tossed dough topped with pumpkin, apples, gruyere cheese, mozzarella, parmesan, and sage. And there are two slices of that. And then there's chicken and gouda, hand-tossed dough topped with a creamy gouda sauce, bourbon brined chicken breast, and finished with Brussels sprouts and hot honey. Two slices. And finally, they're offering the potato habanero, a hand-tossed dough topped with fresh habanero peppers, thinly sliced red potatoes, garlic cream cheese sauce, red onions, and finished with cilantro. Again, two slices. Now we move to Saul Good, which is at 3801 The Mall Road behind Fayette Mall. The tikka masala pizza, chicken tikka masala, topped with cheese, 
spinach, red onions, and bell peppers. Then they have the black bean burrito pizza with refried black beans, pico de gallo, corn, cheese topped with tortilla chips, cilantro, and a house crema. Then they're smashing tomatoes at 3801 Mall Road behind Fayette Mall and 2200 War Admiral Way in Hamburg. Sweet Beast, which is abobriata, pepperoni, fresh mozzarella, prosciutto, gorgonzola, and hot honey. And the pizza fungi, wood-roasted mushrooms, roasted garlic crema, fresh mozzarella, feta, and oregano. And rounding out the locations is Stoner's Pizza Joint at 547 South Limestone. Their two offerings are Stoner's Beer Cheese and Sausage Pizza. And we have Hall's Beer Cheese and Jake's Famous Country Sausage chopped with mozzarella cheese. And finally, the Stoner Beer Cheese Pizza, which is Hall's Beer Cheese topped with mozzarella. So for all week... You get plenty of choices. Moving on. Riot at Kentucky Juvenile Detention Facility leaves youth and staff injured. Several juveniles and staff members were injured during what police of Kentucky's state police districts described as a riot at the juvenile detention facility in Adair County. Kentucky State Police said a juvenile assaulted a staff member confiscated the staff members' keys, and released other juveniles from their cells during the incident Friday night at the Adair Regional Detention Center, a maximum security facility. State police said they were called at about 9.40 p.m., and they, along with local law enforcement, went in and restored order. Those injured were taken to a hospital, state police said in a news release. State police are investigating and charges against those involved are pending further investigation, the news release stated. The Adair facility is located in Columbia, is one of the eight detention centers operated by the Kentucky Department of Juvenile Justice. Juveniles between the ages of 11 and 18 can be sent there to serve a criminal sentence. Juvenile Justice spokeswoman Morgan Hall said in an email Saturday that the riot is unacceptable and the department will seek criminal charges against those involved. In addition to the criminal investigation led by KSP, the Internal Investigations Branch of the Justice and Public Safety Cabinet was opened, has opened an investigation. DJJ will conduct a thorough review to determine if applicable policies were followed and identify further actions that should be taken. Hall said the facility is on the same property as the Adair Youth Development Center, a facility where an attack by two youths in September left another juvenile inmate injured. In that incident, one inmate attacked a staff member while another grabbed the staff member's keys and radio. The two juveniles then attacked a third juvenile. A few days after that, One of the same two inmates made threats against a staff member and tried to take the staff member's keys but was not successful. Hall said the Adair Youth Development Center and Adair Regional Detention Center together can house a maximum of 80 juveniles and the two programs share employees. She said the Juvenile Justice Department is experiencing a critical staff shortage across the department despite recent increases in pay. Recently, DJJ raised the salary for youth workers to the midpoint and increased the hourly rate for locality and shift premiums for facilities located in specific counties to better help recruit and retain, Hall wrote. This is the third effort to address youth worker compensation in a year. In December, Governor Bashir approved a 10% raise for all security positions at DJJ, and in July, the enacted budget provided an 8% increase for all state employees. The riot Friday at the, was at the, the least, at least the second riot 
at the juvenile detention facility in Kentucky in recent months. In August, youths at the Warren Regional Juvenile Detention Center in Bowling Green did a significant amount of damage to the facility on the night of August 20th, but no one was injured. The Herald Leader published a series of articles last fall about unsafe conditions in Kentucky's juvenile justice facilities. Next, update, teen girl found dead after a vehicle goes into the Kentucky River. A 17-year-old girl died after a vehicle went into the Kentucky River Friday night. The body of Macy Grace Wyan, 17, of Lexington, was recovered Saturday from inside the vehicle, which went down an emergency embankment and into the Kentucky River Friday night, said Madison County Coroner Jimmy Cornelison. He said her body was taken to Frankfurt Saturday afternoon for the autopsy. Kentucky State Police said the 17-year-old was driving a 2017 Nissan Altima north on Old Richmond Road when she lost control and the car went over a steep embankment and into the river. Two juvenile passengers got out but were not able to rescue the driver. The passengers were taken to the University of Kentucky Chandler Hospital with injuries that were not life-threatening. One of the passengers was Frederick Douglass High School student and football player Corey Gamble. State police said Lexington's dive team found the vehicle and the driver just before 11.30 a.m. Saturday. The Lexington Fire Department, Richmond Fire Department, Madison County Fire Department, and the Kentucky Department of Fish and Wildlife helped with the search, which state police said was suspended just before 1.30 a.m. Saturday and resumed just before 8.30 a.m. The crash happened in the 9,000 block of Old Richmond Road at 9.42 p.m., said Lexington Fire Department Major Jessica Bowman. The site is near the Fayette-Madison County line, near the old Clays Ferry Bridge, and Proud Mary Barbecue. Next, shorter voting window could cut turnout in the Georgia runoff from Atlanta. Georgia Democrat Raphael Warnock's first runoff in 2021 was a titanic nine-week clash to control the Senate that included three weeks of early in-person voting and lots of mail ballots. Warnock's victory against Republican Senator Kelly Loeffler and Democrat John Ossoff's tilt against Republican David Perdue ended in two Democratic victories that gave the party control of a 50-50 Senate thanks to Vice President Kamala Harris's ability to break ties. But the December 6th runoff won't be for Senate control this time with Democrats retaining seats in Arizona and Nevada earlier this month. Georgia requires a runoff if a candidate doesn't win a majority of the party primary or in the general election, and neither Warnock nor Republican Herschel Walker got to 50%. Under Georgia's 2021 election law, there will be only four weeks before the runoff with Thanksgiving in the middle. Many Georgians will be offered only five weekdays of early in-person voting beginning November 28th, and June's primary runoffs showed time for mail ballots to be received and return can be very tight. Those changes would be a disadvantage for Democrats who tend to push early voting and vote by mail more than Republicans. Because the 2021 law makes it harder to apply for a mail ballot, Democrats urge supporters to vote early in person in October. Democratic U.S. Representative Hank Johnson said it will be challenging to reignite the kind of early voting enthusiasm that Democrats displayed ahead of the general election when overall early voting set a new midterm record. We've from Thanksgiving weekend to Tuesday, December 6th to get these votes out. And there will be a lot of hard work over the holiday and the run-up to the holiday season to make sure we get this vote out, Johnson said. 
I think voters are aware that our future is still in peril and we can make a difference in Georgia for the sake of the nation. We've done it before. We can do it again. Stephen Lawson, who worked for Loeffler ahead of her 2021 defeat to Warnock, recalled that even with a two-month period between the 2020 general election and the second round, you had voters who weren't aware of the runoff date and had to be reminded that it wasn't over. Lawson now leads the 34 North 22 Political Action Committee backing Walker. The changes could reduce lower turn could produce lower turnout. Republicans do better in getting their voters back out for a runoff election, said Eric Tattenblatt, a lobbyist who was chief of staff to Republican Governor Sonny Perdue and later national finance co-chairman for Republican Mitt Romney's 2012 presidential campaign. No one who wasn't on the rolls before November 8th can register to vote now. The last day to register was November 7th. Georgia's 159 counties can open early voting sooner than November 28th if they're able. But they can't begin until the state certifies the general election currently targeted for November 21st, said Deputy Secretary of State Gabriel Sterling. And now, it's time to turn to the obituaries where we read only the name, age, and location if it is given. And today's obituary index starts with Barbara Abner, 75, Berea. Diva Bottoms Benedict, 79, Nicholasville. Janet Buffin, 72, Lexington. Blake Aaron Caldwell, 30, from Lapeer, Missouri. Jeremiah Carpenter, 33, Versailles. Bobby Ray Crawford, 59, Lexington. Jean Guffey, 77, London. David Irvin, 78, of Lexington. Debbie Basford Mill, Lane, Debbie Basford Lane, who was 66 and lived in Moorhead. Linda Lou Mills, 76, of Barberville. Alma Paget, 74, Waynesburg. Jeff Price, 45, of Dunville. Betty C. Stamper, 90, of Lexington. Emma Sumler, 65, of Pine Knot. And Mary Louise Willis, 72, of, Vers- of Berea. And if you would like any further information about any of the obituaries today, please visit Legacy.com slash obituaries slash Kentucky. And also, you can now call us at the Radio I studios at 859-422-6390, and we will try to read those to you over the phone. And now, at the request of our listeners, we'll read Paul Prather's weekly column, and it is entitled, Despite Polarization, Not Much Separates Us. As I write this, I've just returned from voting in the 2022 midterm elections. The polls remain open. I have no idea how the balloting will turn out for the nation, although I would put my money on how it will turn out here in Kentucky, ours being a relentlessly red state. In any case, by the time you read this, you'll know whatever there is to know about today's outcomes. On the whole, though, or at least on the surface, our country appears to be more divided than it has been since the run-up to the Civil War. I've heard that constantly from pundits on the right and the left. People think we're on the cusp of, God forbid, a second Civil War. The alarmists say if the Republicans win control of Congress, they'll destroy democracy, abolish women's rights, and usher in authoritarianism. If the Democrats retain control... We're bound for Cold War-era Soviet-style socialism and gulags. We've been assured this is the most critical election of modern times. Maybe it is. So much chaos, mutual loathing, and just plain stupidity 
have been injected into our political system that no matter which side comes out on top today, the other side is likely to feel trapped, claim it was brazenly cheated, and boil over with rage. A central tragedy of all this is that it doesn't have to be this way. This past Sunday on 60 Minutes, one segment of the program explored social media's role in fueling our political polarization. We are tribal creatures who love to do us versus them, explained one expert, Jonathan Haidt, a social psychologist and professor at NYU's Stern School of Business, who studies the strategies social media platforms use to keep us tuned to their services. And we're now learning to coexist with a technology that tries to force that down our throat, that tries to make us angry all the time. But it turns out the online firebrands who try to keep everybody perpetually ginned up, who pass on disinformation and sling mud and spew bile, largely come from the far right and the far left, he said. What percentage of the population are they? asked correspondent Bill Whitaker. Oh, it's about 7% or 8% on each side, Height replied. Hmm, Whitaker said, is that right? Yeah, that's right. So the extremes have been handed the power to dominate, even though they are fewer in number, Whitaker asks. That's right. Exactly, Haight said. This is what I've been arguing for years. I happen to have people I love who hail from all political perspectives. I'm not yet living in an ideological silo, and I hope you aren't either. I don't check my parishioners' political affiliations. As far as I can tell, the congregation is led evenly about made up of Republicans and Democrats. And it's the same with my family. It's the same with my friends. I know people who are straight up MAGA, don't tread on me, God, guns, and glory flag wavers. And I know people who are tree-hugging, crunchy, Birkenstock-wearing lefties. You want to hear our country's best-kept secret? There's not a nickel's worth of difference between them. No, truly, there's not. Because, yes, I'm repeating myself from columns past. Nobody has ever just one thing. Nobody is a Trump supporter, and that's all. Nobody's a just a wackadoodle lefty, and that's all. That Trumpian or that granola cruncher is also a parent, a sibling, a son or a daughter, an employee, a co-worker, a little league coach, a ballroom dancer, a store manager, a dealer, a deacon, a teacher, a caregiver, to an elderly parent, and 20 other things. Everybody you get to know largely wants a job that pays a decent wage, education for his children, trustworthy friends, good health, a partner who loves her. If she sees somebody injured or with a stalled vehicle, she'll stop to help. If his neighbor's sick, he'll take her a kettle of homemade soup, even if she's a member of the opposition party. He prays to the same God you do. She plays the same Powerball, and mostly, out here in the actual world, we get along. There's always that one crank in the break room who can't quit talking politics and conspiracy theories. But with four out of people you know, you generally find common ground on four or five things you discuss. The weather, football, your loony kids. Unless you happen to be that one crank. But don't become that one crank. Don't be swayed by the dividers and soreheads and the doomsayers on Twitter and Facebook or those at the Thanksgiving table. The great majority of us really can get along. We already do every day. We don't need or want a civil war. And Paul Prather, as you know, is the pastor of Bethesda Church near Mount Sterling. You can email him at prattpd at yahoo.com. And now let's return to the news. 
Saudi Arabia has green version at COP27, but the critics are unmoved. Hydrogen cars and vehicles that capture their tailpipe pollutants. Commuter, computer mice made from recycled ocean waste plastic. Hundreds of millions of trees planted in the desert. Saudi Arabia's vision of an environmentally friendly future is on displays just a short drive from the venue of the UN Climate Summit being held in Egypt. What's not highlighted in the glossy gallery are the earth-warming fossil fuels that the country continues to pump out of the ground for global export. Fossil fuel emissions are a reason Negotiators from nearly 200 countries have gathered for the annual two-week conference, haggling over how pollution can be cut and how fast to do it. In and around the conference, Saudi Arabia is presenting itself as a leader in green energies and eco-friendly practices with flashy pavilions, glossy presentations, and optimistic assessments of technologies like carbon capture, which can remove carbon dioxide from the air, but is costly and years away from being deployed at scale. We have hugely ambitious goals and targets, Saudi climate envoy Adel Al-Jubier said at the two-day Saudi Green Initiative Forum on COP27 sidelines. We want to be an example to the world in terms of what can be done. The effort is part of a large push by Saudi Arabia, which has some of the world's largest reserves of oil and is a leader of the OPEC oil cartel, to make the case that the nation should be part of the transition to renewable energies while holding on to its role as the top global crude oil exporter. That vision is sharply contested by climate scientists and environmental experts who argue that Saudi Arabia and other countries with large reserves of oil simply want to distract the world and continue with business as usual. The Saudi energy minister, Prince Abulaziz bin Salman al Saad, announced a raft of new green projects or updates to existing ones, from beefed-up tree planting pledges to fresh solar energy products in the pipeline. Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman launched his Saudi Green Initiative ahead of last year's COP26 conference in Glasgow, Scotland, with a target for net zero greenhouse gas emissions by 2060. Still, energy exports are the Saudi's economy's mainstay, earning $150 billion in annual revenue despite efforts to diversify revenue as the global transition away from fossil fuel reliance accelerates. At the Saudi Forum, officials and invited guest speakers from renewable energy companies held forth on topics like clean hydrogen, greening the desert, and a futuristic desert city project called NEOM. State-owned oil giant Saudi Aramco's CEO Amin Nassar said the world needs more investments in oil and gas, not less. A message at odds with the sentiment among many country delegations and climate experts and activists attending COP27. I'm concerned because of lack of investment in the oil and gas in particular, said Nassar, touching on a frequent theme. Saudi Arabia has resisted calls to urgently phase out fossil fuels, warning that a premature switch has led to price spikes and shortages. Yes, there is good investment happening in the alternatives, such as wind and solar power, he said adding that the amount of money spent on oil production capacity has fallen to $400 billion a year from $700 billion in 2014. That is not enough to meet global demand in the mid to long term, he said. Among the Saudi announcements, there were plans to set up a regional center to advance emission reductions and one to host a regional climate week 
ahead of next year's COP meeting. Saudi Arabia is also set to build 13 renewable energy projects with a total generating capacity of 11.4 gigawatts, though experts said that's a step back from the number announced in previous years. Once they're up and running, the new energy projects will cut carbon dioxide emissions by about 20 million tons a year. Saudi Aramco's plans to build the world's biggest carbon capture and storage hub, which will store up to 7 million tons of its carbon dioxide when it's up and running in 2027. It's all part of the kingdom's pledge to cut emissions by 278 million tons a year by 2030. That's still small compared to about 10 billion billion metric tons of carbon spewed globally into the air annually. The kingdom also upgraded its tree planting goal to 600 million by 2030, including mangroves up from its 450 million initial target. But climate experts weren't convinced. Saudi Arabia would be better placed to focus on cutting emissions rather than relying on carbon capture and storage and questionable reductions from planting trees, the offsets of which would simply allow them to continue increasing emissions from burning fossil fuels, said Mia Moisio, an energy policy expert focusing on Mideast and North Africa at the New Climate Institute think tank. The Climate Action Tracker, operated by the Institute and its partners, rates Saudi Arabia as highly insufficient. The tracker analyzes nations' climate targets and policies compared to the goals of the 2015 Paris Agreement that spells out ideally limiting the Earth's temperature rise to 1.5 degrees Celsius or 2.7 degrees Fahrenheit. Saudi authorities are promoting what they call a circular carbon economy to cut emissions from oil and gas operations, but the tracker says this only addresses a fraction of the relevant emissions in Saudi Arabia and globally, as most emissions related to oil and gas come from fuel combustion rather than extraction and processing. Saudi Arabia's oil and gas assets spew 900 million tons of emissions a year, according to an inventory of top known sources of greenhouse gas emitters, compiled by the Climate Trace Coalition and launched at COP27. There's also a plan for a greenhouse gas crediting and offsetting scheme next year with few details. Carbon credits, which allow countries and companies to pay to reduce their carbon footprints, have become increasingly controversial, with critics saying they're a license for polluting companies to keep polluting. At least, at least this year's talks in Glasgow and Saudi Arabia faced accusations that its negotiators were working to block climate measures that would threaten demand for oil, a charge the energy minister called a lie. As negotiations on the final agreement head into their second and final week, watchdog groups warned about the influence of so-called petro-states and industry lobbyists. They counted 636 people linked to fossil fuel companies on the meeting's provisional list of participants, a quarter more than last year's tally. And next, bomb rocks the avenue in the heart of Istanbul with six dead and dozens hurt. A bomb rocked a major pedestrian avenue in the heart of Istanbul on Sunday, killing six people, wounding several dozen, and sending people fleeing in the fiery explosion. Emergency vehicles rushed to Iskatal Avenue, a popular thoroughfare lined with shops and restaurants that leads to the iconic Taksim Square. Turkish President Recep Tayyip Erdogan called the blast a treacherous attack and said its perpetrators would be punished. He did not say who that was behind the attack, 
but it had the smell of terror. He did not offer details. The president said investigations were ongoing by the police and the governor's office, including reviewing footage of the area. Ergodon said six people were killed. Vice President Fuat Akte later updated the wounded toll to 81, with two in serious condition, and said it appeared to be a terrorist attack. Turkey was hit by a string of bombings between 2015 and 17 that left more than 500 civilians and security personnel dead. Some of the attacks were perpetrated by the Islamic State group, while others were executed by Turkish militants who have led a decades-long insurgency against the Turkish state for increased autonomy or independence. Turkey has been fighting the militants known as the PKK and considered a terrorist organization by Turkey, the United States, and the European Union in the country's southeast for years. Following the string of attacks, Turkey launched cross-border military operations into Syria and northern Iraq against Kurdish militants while also cracking down on Kurdish politicians, journalists, and activists at home through the broad terror laws that critics say are a way to silence dissent. Turkey's media watchdog imposed temporary restrictions on reporting on Sunday's explosion, a move that bans the use of close-up videos and photos of the blast and its aftermath. The Supreme Council of Radio and Television has imposed similar bans in the past following attacks and accidents. Access to some content on Twitter and other social media sites such as videos was limited. And next, all eyes on Biden, Z, ahead of Superpower Summit's showdown. From Phnom Penh, Cambodia, last November, President Joe Biden and Chinese President Xi Jinping emerged from a virtual meeting determined to chart the new path that would prevent the two superpowers from spiraling into an open conflict. But, a year later, as the two presidents prepare to meet in person for the first time since Biden took office, Washington and Beijing remain in a diplomatic and economic standoff. On Monday, Biden and Xi will meet on the sidelines of the Group 20 Summit and again try to repair the world's most important bilateral relationship. The two leaders are likely to offer a familiar refrain about prioritizing stability as they hash out their differences, analysts say. China and the U.S. have clashed over trade, climate change, human rights, and Beijing's tacit support for Russia's war in Ukraine. The two superpowers are also fundamentally at odds over the subject of Taiwan. Disputes over the status of the island's democracy have driven much of the recent enmity between China and the U.S., China views Taiwan as a renegade province that it wants to reclaim, a prospect that has taken on urgency as Xi has moved into a more aggressive stance in military action and rhetoric towards even eventual unification. The U.S. acknowledges China's position without endorsing it, but Biden has said on four occasions that the U.S. would defend Taiwan militarily if China attacked, a statement that conflicts with Washington's long-standing policy of remaining silent about what it might do in the case of a Chinese attack. Relations between the U.S. and China worsened in August after U.S. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi visited Taiwan, which Beijing viewed as an offense against its claims of sovereignty. In response, China's military launched missile tests, warships, and planes around Taiwan for several days, imposed sanctions on Pelosi, and cut off 
all communication with the U.S. on issues as diverse as military relations and climate change. It's a very good development. At least they're talking, said Minzen P., a professor of government at Claremont McKenna College. What's most likely to happen is they agreed to resume some discussion on things. Even on Taiwan, there is at least some common ground between the two countries, P added. They have a lot of differences, but one thing they don't want to see is a direct conflict. White House officials stressed that there's no expectation Biden's meeting with Z will yield any progress. The two presidents have no plans to issue a joint statement following their meeting, administration officials said, underscoring just how little has changed since Biden and Z attempted to set the tone of their relationship a year ago. The meeting is instead a chance for Biden to build a floor for the relationship and ensure that there are rules of the road that bound our competition, a senior administration official told reporters on Thursday. Biden said he wouldn't make any fundamental concessions, but wants to lay out what each of our red lines are and determine whether they conflict with one another. And if they do, how to resolve it and how to work it out, he told reporters at the White House last week. Asked whether he would tell Z the U.S. would defend Taiwan in the face of Chinese aggression, Biden said, I'm going to have to that conversation with him. Even something as basic as an agreement that the current trajectory of the U.S.-China relationship is untenable would be a sign of success, said Jude Blanchett, chair of China Studies at the Center for Strategic and International Studies in Washington. Both sides likely see the other's desire to stabilize the relationship as more tactical than substantive, given the deep levels of distrust that now exist, Blanchett said. Beijing thinks the U.S. wants to simply normalize the level of hostility it thinks the U.S. is showing towards it, and for its part, the U.S. thinks Beijing's talk of stability is just a stall tactic. And finally, seven ways to give your Thanksgiving meal a taste of Kentucky. For many people, Thanksgiving is about coming home, and that means coming to the table. Whether you're literally going home or just want your holiday meal to give you a taste of home, here are some ways to put Kentucky on your Thanksgiving table. You can go big with a local turkey or ham or stick to the sides and the dessert. There's something for everybody, but you need to place orders in advance for some items, like the Elmwood Stock Farm turkey. The Elmwood Stock Farm at 3520 Paris Road in Georgetown has some of the best turkeys around. They've been singled out by Cook's Illustrated, Spruce Eats, and PureWow.com for their quality birds. You can order heritage breeds or broad-breasted turkeys all organically raised on Kentucky pastures. You can order online at ElmwoodStockFarm.com for local pickup or shipping information with the delivery before Thanksgiving. But don't wait because they do run out. How about a broad-bent country ham? B&B Broadbent Farms in Cuttawa, Kentucky, produced many Kentucky State Fair Grand Champion hams, including the 2022 version that sold at auction for a record $5 million. But you can get a ham for your holiday table for far less, thank goodness, by ordering online at broadbenthams.com. And you can get uncooked hickory-smoked salty versions or pre-cooked hams. How about the Lexington Farmer's Market? If you're looking for local flavor, Check out the Lexington Farmer's Market on Saturday in downtown Lexington, Tandy Park on Main Street, next to the old courthouse. You'll find many options, including appetizers like beer cheese, a salad, and vegetables for sale, and sides like fresh baked bread, jams, jellies, and more. Or how about the Good Foods Co-op at 455D Southland Drive? Has a lot of options for Kentucky farmers, including Farmer's Joe Turkeys, Mark's Berry Smoked Ham, Weisenberger, and much more, as well as its own holiday meal items. The co-op is closed on Thanksgiving Day this year, but you can pre-order items to take home to try on or grab on go. Place holiday orders online for single plate, full meals with turkey or 
or vegan celebration roast, or order side dishes at the at the store. And the deadline is November 16th. There's also Critchfield Meats Family Market and Lexington Restaurants that are open on Thanksgiving. And finally, how about the bourbon, wine, craft, beer, and more drinks to serve on Thanksgiving? If you're looking for something non-alcoholic, Kentucky's own homegrown favorite is Ale 81, which comes in original, cherry, and orange cream, which is great for cocktails or even alone. And this concludes the reading of the Lexington Herald Leader today, which is Monday, November 14th. Your reader has been Rod Brotherton with Bill Sally on the Master Controls. Thank you for listening. And now, please stay tuned for sports news right here on Radio I. Lucky Land Casino, asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.